0: everybody. I want to welcome you to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. My name is Mel Massingale. I'm one of your hosts today. I'm sitting here alongside uh, Pastor Todd Stanley. Hello. hello. And I also have, uh, for your listening pleasure, Michael Bond is with us as well.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody?
0: And uh, we're so glad you guys are joining us today on uh, another episode. And uh, if you are enjoying these conversations and jumping in these conversations, please do us a favor and um, rate And also uh, give us a review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and download these and uh, it'll just help us. And if if it's helpful, share it on social media, tell somebody about it. And we might be mentioning some social media stuff today as well, but uh, yeah, it's good to see you guys.
2: Yeah. Good to be here. This is episode two of what we're calling season two, and I'm really excited about the new format, about what's going on. And I hope you guys enjoyed
1: episode one. Yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, we have some really interesting stuff to talk about.
0: You like,
2: you like that sentence
0: ending? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know if you were talking to us. Did we enjoy episode one or if did, did the listeners had, enjoyed it? And uh, I don't know if they did. I, I had a good time. Hopefully, though,
2: so, yeah. hopefully we all had a good time.
1: I think it was <laughs> okay. really enjoyable. This one's going to be even better. Oh, man. Hey, under promise and over deliver, Mike. Come on,
2: right. You set the bar too high, sir. <laughs>
1: Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited for today's episode because I know it's one that I need to hear a lot from and benefit from about the idea of like work rhythm and work-life balance and how to get into a rhythm that would sort of protect your schedule and not lead to you being overworked. But before we get into that, why don't we do our This Week in Church Leadership? Uh, I guess I'll kick this off. I found an article that I thought was pretty interesting about, it was in Christianity Today, and the author of the articles. excuse me, sort of making the case for why we shouldn't quit Twitter, why we should stay there and why, uh, if we were to leave those domains to just entire uh secular society to the pagans yeah like (laughs) and then we wouldn't be salt and light anymore and then that that whole area would start to deteriorate and i'm interested to know what you guys think because i know that with my time on twitter um i'm I'm not a really active tweeter but uh just reading threads uh man it's so toxic like the, the one of the greatest analogies that i've heard for it is it's like It's like road rage only, uh, you know, in a digital format or like online. You know how Mm -hmm. you might be in your car and you might say some really horrible things about the person in front of you because you don't see them directly. You're not like coming into that close personal contact and the same problem happens on Twitter where you just see their Twitter handle. You're not really engaging with the person. And so you're just willing to sling mud. And I think that the character limitations, like the number, uh, because they're super short messages, it uh, makes... Arguments become low resolution and it sort of strips things uh, of nuance and, mm-hmm. and the subtleties that you would need in normal conversation. And so, what do you think about the toxicity of Twitter? And do you think that uh, it's worth it for Christians to stay there to try to provide a voice of reason amongst the mob? <laughs> I think it comes down to a matter of calling. Um, I
2: disengaged from Twitter a little while back just because. It is not good for my mental health. It's not a good space for me to be in. So I don't really feel like that that's a place that I've been called to be. But that doesn't mean that there's not somebody who is called to be there and to engage well. I think it's like anything else. I mean, God... You know, God called me to Indiana, Pennsylvania, and not Tanzania, but God called someone else to Tanzania because they're equipped and called and gifted to be in that place. I think we just need to have discernment about anything like that, whatever God's calling us to engage, you know. And so um, just prayerfully think about it and consider it and ask the Lord what He wants you to do. I don't think Twitter in and of itself is an evil thing it's a technology that we can leverage or not leverage for good or bad
0: i hate twitter so much which is (laughs) kind of the opposite of your answer (laughs) i do i hate it so much um, because i feel like the the people that are um, people that are the most toxic are the ones that are are the most hidden most of them have um profile picture that it's like a logo or a cartoon character or and then they've got a you know some like you know fantasy pirate t- 247 at you know or whatever and it's like it's, it's totally anonymous so they can say whatever they want they can do whatever they want and um and so all that ends up happening is you're not engaging people in good faith dialogue mm-hmm. yeah. and so all that ends up happening is um something ugly and evil and wicked in my own heart gets stirred up mm-hmm. and um and so i've really tried to and i don't spend very much time on twitter at all but if if i do it's usually i'm just going to drop something like a promo something on there hey this is coming up and i'm putting it on there for the you know 50 people that follow me on twitter or whatever <laughs> it is but i i do not engage just because um there there is a sense of calling to it but there's also this idea that man i don't want i I don't want to sacrifice my own health, emotional, spiritual health for Mm -hmm. something that I don't think has eternal value like that. So,
1: Right, like if you're trying to leverage the platform and in order to further advance the kingdom of God, but your interaction with the platform causes you yourself to become toxic, then you're going to be doing a lot more damage
0: overall than you would be by trying to leverage the platform. That makes... Well, I think Twitter is... I think it's a little bit more, more specific to Twitter than some of the other social media platforms, but I would say since I disengaged from Facebook and Twitter as well, I feel healthier. Um, I feel more optimistic probably about life uh, mm-hmm. because we're not, I don't see so much negative bad. And so I, I do think it's a maturity issue that we've got to make sure. And maybe you can navigate that stuff really, really well and in a mature way and great do that. But I just understand my heart well enough to know eh, it's not good for me to be on there and see that and see what some of our people from our church post. I don't need to see all that. So Mm -hmm.
2: yeah, and I think that I mean that's kind of what I was getting at with uh, the idea of understanding whether you're called to be there or not. I mean, if you cannot remain healthy and be there, if you can't be growing in your relationship with Christ, if you can't continue to love, you know. Liberati 2021 or whoever it is that, you know, uh, you know, if you can't continue to love and demonstrate Christ and then, then you don't need to be there. Uh, it's, you know, it's as clear as that. Um, but if you can do those things and do them well, uh, then maybe, maybe God's placed you in that space. But, um, my suspicion is that most people, Uh, Who think, oh, well, we've got to stay engaged in this to be, you know, and I know you use the term salt and light, really aren't being salt and light. They're just mostly being salty. Yeah, And, (laughs) you know, and that's that's not good
1: for any of us, I don't think. Have you guys heard of uh, reply guys? So, like, there's this phenomenon on Twitter. This is how toxic Twitter can be. Um, Now, this was, I think, most prevalent when uh, Trump was president. So uh, there would be these guys who... Every time he would tweet something, they would reply just the most ridiculous, hateful thing they could (laughs) could possibly think of. They would reply that, and these guys built entire careers off of just replying to Mm -hmm. his tweets. Hundreds of thousands of followers, and uh, were making a lot of money. And it was became like an industry. And and it's so (laughs) the fact that the platform itself incentivizes that kind of thing. I, I just don't. Maybe we get to a point where a platform is so destructive that it has we just have to say well we got to take our hands off of this and uh you know not not engage with it it's really difficult for me to do that though because at the same time uh there's a reason why people who uh have influence are banned from twitter Mm -hmm. will be banned and i think it's because uh the republicans well yeah (laughs) i mean i mean (laughs) Because the platform elevates your voice enough and elevates your influence enough to where you can become potent in sort of moving the cultural zeitgeist, I think. uh, And again, like, I don't have 500,000 followers on Twitter, so maybe that doesn't even apply to me. But if it did, would I be justified in just removing my hands from it and, and not participating? Or would it be an obligation for me to try to Set
0: up a spoof account and start over. (laughs) (laughs) No, and and I think that, you know, I think that might make a difference too. Like, okay, what is the level of influence you currently have? And is, is what it would take to gain a foothold on that platform worth what it might cost you in order to gain it? And maybe... Maybe it would. I just know for me where I'm at right now and what I feel like God's called me to do, it's like, nah, I'm not. It feels like more of a distraction than it does like, hey, I'm going to build a platform so I can share the gospel in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: and this may be taking the conversation in a little bit different direction, but uh, John Mark Comer, uh, who actually I'll probably mention again later in this conversation about work life rhythm and all that kind of thing, but he uh, is a pastor and an author. Uh, But one of the things that he said recently, I was listening to him speak, he was talking about social media a bit, and he said uh, that until we recognize that social media is mass behavior modification, then we won't know how Mm -hmm. to deal with it properly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Do you think that there are forms of social media that are inherently more godly than others and like places maybe where we should focus our attention as opposed to something like a Twitter
0: inherently no. more godly no, <laughs> no. i mean it goes back to what todd said earlier he said you know it's just a tool that's mm-hmm. all it is it's what we do with it that you know that creates um creates energy in one direction or the other and i think we've defaulted with twitter to uh, many times the lowest common denominator of just name calling and you know yeah. that kind of thing and that's what gives it the the energy and the momentum in the direction it, I feel like it's going. Mm-hmm. So here's yeah. like
1: a deeper question off of that. I'm really interested in what you think if we start to silo ourselves. So like, so let's say we get away from Twitter, we get away from some of the other forms that, you know, where it's pretty destructive to be on there. And let's say that everyone kind of adheres to their own form of social media <clears throat> and we break down the public square that way. And we're all sort of siloed in our own communities do you think that the cost of that happening outweighs the uh, potential risk of getting behind a Twitter it, 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 as large as it is, and saying, "Hey, th- like w- this is the public square for"? whether we like it or not in the in cyberspace this is the public square let's keep it that way because at least we have a public square if we divide everybody up accord in accordance with their confirmation biases mm-hmm. then then all we have are silos where we bounce yeah. stuff off of each other and um maybe uh, i know i think about like certain international things like the arab spring and things like that that, that came out of social mm-hmm. media and great acts of of advancement culturally or societally for yeah. different countries um, is there a cost to just uh, cloistering ourselves or, or putting ourselves in a, in a Christian bubble when it comes to online communication? Certainly there's a cost. Um,
2: for good or bad, and <laughs> it looks like for bad <laughs> a lot of the time, uh, social media is shaping culture, period. Uh, if we disengage completely from those spaces, then we abdicate uh to the culture you, you know and so uh, I don't I don't think that's healthy or good uh, I just think we have to do it you know um, prayerfully and we have to do it uh, you know with eyes open, understanding what we're getting into when we wade into that space you know I grew up in a a Pentecostal, pretty legalistic environment as a kid, and I remember pastors preaching against television like it was just the you know, I mean, they they call it you know, you, the hellavision or you know, the you, HBO's you
0: did, hell's best offense, hell, yeah, and
2: yeah. skin to the max was the you know, like you know, there was all this kind of preaching, and and it's not that there it's not that it wasn't true that there were things on there that Christians shouldn't engage in and you shouldn't fill your mind with. But that doesn't mean that Christians should abandon the space, right? It's a tool that can be used to, to communicate the, the truth of the gospel, to impact people for the cause of Christ. And social media is no different. But we have to engage in it differently than the world does. I mean, it's any, it's like anything else that you know, that we're called to, we're called to be in the world, but not of it. And so there should be a marked difference. In the way that Christians engage on social media, if you're a Christian and you are trolling on social media, you are not behaving as a follower of Christ should. If your um, if your posts and comments and all that if if they are slanted, slanted towards cynicism and then then you're not acting as a follower of Christ because Jesus is hope. And so in the Christian worldview, there is no room for cynicism because we believe that Jesus got up out of the grave. There is always resurrection. There is always hope. And if our social media presence, if the way in which we engage and live in the world does not reflect that, we are not reflecting the gospel of Christ. And if we cannot be in a particular space and reflect who Christ is, we don't need to be in that space,
0: period. Well, I think there's a philosophical, you know, we talked about like seeding the space and having, you know, this public dialogue, but, you know, ha- having a public dialogue depends on, like I said earlier, good faith conversations. Yeah. Um, and so I get the f- philosophical point of view where we say, Hey, it's important for us to take a stand and, uh, you know, not retreat from different platforms, but from a practical perspective, I feel like that it's not real life and people don't behave on social media like they do in real life and and so for me that's where i'm like you know what i want to focus on the real relationships that i have the people that i come into contact with and you know like i want to influence the people in indiana pennsylvania i'm not as concerned about you know building a platform or having influence in people that um, our avatars, you know? Um, so for me, and and I know this is, there's not a right answer to this, but for me, I'm like, I don't really care that much about social media. You know, like I think it's a necessary evil to some degree, but, um, I, I know people that spend a lot of time. As a matter of fact, my last church that I served on staff at, you know, our pastor talked to us a lot about, Hey, um, how many retweets did you get on that last, you know, when you tweeted about this church event, you know, how many, what was the engagement like? I mean, that was a strong emphasis from the leadership. And when we came here, I was like, I hate that stuff. Like Mm. I just, anyway. So I think that's part of why I'm kind of bent toward, I don't care about that. Like, well, and like, I mean, in an unhealthy way, probably.
2: Well, and from a personal standpoint, I I feel a lot of the same way. Like I said, I've, I disengaged from Twitter a while back and I, I don't, like I don't have the app on my phone. I don't engage with it in any way, uh, because for me, it's just not a good place for me to be. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm rarely on Facebook anymore. Uh, I, you know, I just there are just places that for me, I I don't feel a compulsion to be there, like a calling from Christ. I, of course, there's compulsion because they, you know, keep giving you the notifications, uh, but but I don't feel I don't feel a, a call to be there. Uh, and I, you know, and so for me, yeah, no, that's not, that's really probably not going to be a place where I try to build a platform or do a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that someone else isn't, isn't called to be there.
1: Yeah. I think my biggest frustration with social media, and we can close on this article with this, um, is that it is a great purveyor of like empty potato chip style content, like just (laughs) Mm -hmm. completely void of nutrients. And the problem with having, so I, I read a, a stat recently that said there's been more content created in the last two years than in all of human history. Yeah. Okay. And the problem with that is that if 99% of that content is worthless, is like, you know, it's going to be forgotten tomorrow and never seen again. And, and yeah. it has no deep impact at all. It, it's people are just barraged with this stuff and it takes it it is a massive distraction to the, the richer content and the content that could really be transformational. If you ask someone, what are the five books you've read that have changed your life? I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to answer that question. And I think that the role social media plays in putting out that kind of content or that, that content that distracts away from that sort Mm -hmm. of thing, um, I think is, uh, really detrimental and it's hard to measure how bad it really is. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of noise. And I think that's,
2: you know, that may be another conversation to have, but, um, are we able to rise above the noise or, you know, do you have a voice that can cut through the noise? Uh, and I know for me, I, I'm not going to cut through the noise on social media. I'm not that guy. Right. And so, um, it wouldn't be a good space for me to be. I think another question, and maybe this can transition us into the next article that I've got here, um, is that you know, uh, Gen Z younger people uh, are are not engaged with Twitter. They're not engaged with Facebook. They've moved on to other platforms, you know. And so, uh, is is there even a real return on our investment to to be in those kind of spaces? Uh, and then. Gen Z, and I'll just say, there's an article that I read this week um, from, actually it's from Relevant Magazine. Uh, some of you may f- feel some kind of way about Relevant. I don't know, but it's a good article. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's an article about Gen Z about uh, why they're leaving the church and why, you know, uh, the fact that 44.4%, uh, which that's an interesting number, but 44% of Gen Z, uh, which, by the way, that's people who were born after nineteen ninety six. Uh, they characterize themselves as nuns, so they don't have any religious affiliation. So forty four percent. I mean, that is tr- that's much higher than even you know the generate the millennials, the generation right before them. And so there is this disengagement from the church and this feeling that, um, well, that number one, that the church doesn't have the the kind of authoritative voice that it might have carried in other generations. And then uh, one of the big things that they talked about was the level of trust uh, that Gen Z has in the church. The church, uh, it was like 40, I can't see, I can't find the number now, like 48, 49 percent uh, of Gen Z said they felt like that the church was trustworthy. So less than half of of all Gen Z thinks is the church is trustworthy and that's reflected in, you know, their engagement. Uh, So I guess I'll just throw that out there to you guys. What do we need to do? Uh, Is there something to do? What, you know, um, what does this tell us about the church or about Gen Z or
0: just? Yeah. I mean, that's not terribly surprising to me. Uh, It's sad, but I don't think that's terribly surprising um, uh, we live in a world I think that's m- marked more and more by cynicism um, a-, a growing level of distrust about any corporate entity whether it's the government or church or media or you know we I think we a lot of people default to this idea that um that the leadership is yeah. in it for themselves that they're not in it for the greater good or for you know And, uh, so yeah, of course they would think that among church and especially cause, uh, so much of the bad things that happen in church gets sensationalized and gets highlighted and gets talked about and very little of the good stuff that happens in church makes headlines, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, I hate it. I think the church has a tough job to do, um, engaging, uh, that, that generation in a different way, but, um, but I'm not surprised at all by that.
1: What's really disturbing about this idea of being a nun or being non-affiliated with any kind of belief structure at all, or at least claiming that, that you aren't, is that it seems to me that this the people who fall into that sector, uh, they, they no longer believe in belief itself. Yeah. like They don't think that, they don't understand the motivating power of belief and they don't re- realize the motivating power that it has on their own life. And that it currently has, even when they say that there are none, like they don't understand how their beliefs are informing their actions and informing their values and directing every step of their daily life. And if you're not, if you're not aware of that, you're not in the driver's seat of your life of where you're going and the choices that you're making. I mean, you're, you, you have free will obviously still, but like you, you have some questions you have to answer, just being alive, being conscious. Where am I from? Why am I here? where yeah. am I going? All, all of those things. Uh, and if you say you don't know, well, that's, that is an answer also. Like that's mm-hmm. an answer that has implications. And often at times I think the implications of, I don't know where I'm from or where I'm going is just an easy road denialism, which is, you know, right. Just like everything ends in nothing. And so yeah. therefore nothing matters and all mm-hmm. of that. And I think that maybe one of the ways of bringing that segment of the Gen Z back onto the fold, into the fold is to just show them the power of belief, no matter what it is, Uh, you know, and then maybe they would see that, okay, uh, my belief is directly impacting my quality of life right now. How can I change that in order to improve things for myself Mm -hmm. or improve things for my community or my family? all of that I think is wrapped into belief. And I think this idea of being skeptical of belief itself is super dangerous because I don't think you can really get away from belief no matter where you turn You're still going to end up in some belief structure. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. So one of the things they talk about in the article, and I think it relates to what you're saying is that, Gen Z is easily the loneliest generation of Americans. They said 46% of Americans feel lonely some of the time, but that number jumps to 69% with Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says also 68% of Gen Z feel like nobody knows them well. And so, uh, and man, maybe this is all wrapped up in, in kind of what we're talking about with social media as well. This is probably the most yeah. so, most engaged generation on social media and yet you know and we hear this a lot but they feel really disconnected they feel yep. alone they don't feel like anybody really knows them well and so um, you know one of the things that they talked about in the article was that lack of connection can't be met by a brand or corporation or an institution but it can be met by people who reach out with empathy and love and understanding and so you know if if we as the church can engage in real life Right? In ways that are loving and in ways that have empathy and understanding toward what gen, you know what younger people are facing and what they're dealing with, uh, you know that may, that may be way, well, not just maybe. I think it probably would be great, way, way more effective than any impact we're ever going to have on social media or you know that kind of platform.:
0: Well, I mean, and then maybe this is an oversimplification. I just facts don't change people's lives. Like, um, you know, scripture says it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. So it's not like, Hey, I'm going to tell you why you need God. And, and some people come to Christ that way in a, in a, you know, um, oh, a more intellectual way. But I think more people are drawn to beauty and drawn yeah. to the narrative and, you know, that we're part of the story and they're moved by that. Then, and, and I think sometimes churches get so, oh, maybe um, so settled into a place where we just assume everybody believes like we do. And, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to tell the story. And there's this grand sweeping meta narrative that we're all wrapped up in and that we all get swept up into if, you know, and, and so what happens is we end up just transmitting data to people instead of Showing them the beauty of Christ, yeah and and I think a lot of uh, well, there's a lot of people younger than me now, but a lot of people younger than me and the generations that have followed you know uh, Gen X, they they want to be something they want to be part of something that really matters and that's really beautiful and that's really impactful and and that's them as an individual, but them corporately as well, I really do believe that, and I don't think we've been very compelling about why that's the church or why that's Christ. Yeah. I think we just get settled into this place where we go, hey come to church. And they're like, well I don't need to come to church um to be connected to God. And that that's true, you don't. So what what's happened though is we rely on old tropes like um well you you need to be in Sunday school or you need right. to be in well why? Well right. it's it's good. It's going to make you better and and so I think when we really help them see the beauty of being one with Christ and the depth of the gospel and it just Mm -hmm. takes on a different, a different shape.
2: I think uh, unfortunately um, what we're seeing as far as Gen Z and identifying as a nun, um, what we're seeing is actually a level of honesty that is probably really pretty refreshing (laughs) to be honest. Um, What we're seeing is the outgrowth of them witnessing people who said yeah. that they were Christians but were not following Christ in any active way right they may have had and i you know i don't get to decide who's saved and who's not i'm not it's not about that but i i think it's it's painfully obvious that there are many people uh, who have called themselves Christians but not taken the teachings of Christ seriously yeah. in terms of following them. Um, and so, you know, when you see that, like if you were a kid who grew up in church and your parents said that they were Christians, but they weren't following Christ and their lives didn't reflect that, yeah. why would you grow up and go, yeah, I'm a Christian? I mean, I think being a nun is way more honest than if they continue just to say, Well, you know, I grew up in church, so yeah, I'm a Christian. Um mm-hmm. and I think that's a that's a great opportunity uh for the gospel to come to bear on their lives in significant ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can look at that and go, Oh man, that's tragic. And and it is tragic, but I think it's it's tragic generationally. It's not just a Gen Z thing. This didn't mm-hmm. happen in a vacuum. Yeah. And I think we have to wrestle with, you know, how have we miscommunicated the beauty of the gospel? How have we uh, not told this story in in all of its glory in the way that it needs to be told? Because because the gospel is beautiful and compelling, and people want right, our hearts long to be identified with that story to find our place in that for the you know for the work of God to be done in our lives. And so for for a generation to intentionally pull back and go, Nope, not for me, that means that they've that we've not done a good
1: job.
0: Yeah, the gospel's not broken. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of
1: value, Pastor Mel, in what you were saying about the danger of tropes and the so I think of it like um imagine you have a a congregation of people who've been christians their whole life so they've they've been you know they've been sitting in the narrative forever right mm-hmm. and so they they under they understand the meaning and the why behind the platitudes and i yep. think that what ends up happening is that when a whole group of people all understand that it mm-hmm. becomes easier to just speak in platitudes and the those kind of uh Christian buzz statements mm-hmm. also um, trigger a lot of amens, I think, and a lot yeah. of like yeah, uh, yeah. response and and kind of a, and I think sometimes it also just feels like we're repeating ourselves. You know, if we if we go into a detailed explanation of of a uh, a buzz statement or of mm-hmm. like a a summarized version, you know, to really dig in and and, re- and repeat all of the details, I think can seem like a waste of time sometimes whenever maybe most of the people around us are already know what it means but yeah. then you sacrifice like the the potential of really delivering home like oh that's what the blood of christ means yeah. oh that's what salvation is oh that's what it feels like to be forgiven like all of that stuff i think can be lost with with the Christian ease.
0: well we had a, a few years ago todd you might remember this there was a a young lady that started attending our church and um, she on one of the, like the offering envelopes, she had dropped it in, but she wrote a question and something about um, how, how can, how can the blood of Christ make me white? And like, if you've been around church your whole life, you're like, well, come on, (laughs) of course (laughs) we we all know this, you know, but it's like, Nope, Nope. If you're, if you're new to this thing, like, that doesn't make sense. If you get blood on something, it ruins it. Like, it stains it, and you need to throw it out. So, you know, and so just um, being able to talk through those things and, and remember that not everybody knows the language and knows the Christianese and and uh, trying, to, trying to, you know, take away the lines between the church and unbelievers, you know, like – remove some of the barriers so that somebody doesn't feel like an outsider just because we say things and they go, "Well, I don't know what that means. I mean, just like we would if we were in another country Mm -hmm. and we can kind of understand the language, but not quite, we're going to feel like outsiders because they're talking, but we don't really understand what they're saying. And that's the way a lot of people feel when they walk in our churches is Mm -hmm. because of that kind of stuff. And I don't think it's intentional. I just think we get comfortable in our culture. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, we get used to using that language. And because we've been around it and we know what it means, we forget that other people don't. Like my little brother uh, served in the Air Force, and he would text me sometimes, and he would use military jargon. Yeah, You know, like there's... Three letters, you know, like he sends this, you know, and I have no idea what those
0: three letters mean. You thought he like butt text you or something? Yeah, I was like what, I, <laughs> yeah.
2: what? You know, I was like, what? I don't, I don't understand. You're gonna have to, you know, interpret that for me. And then, you know, of course, that would translate to three, like a, an entire sentence, you know. Mm-hmm. That like, I was like, but if you're not in that community, you don't yeah. know what that means. Um, and we've not often done a good job in the church of,
1: you know extrapolating the meanings so how much of this uh delivering a high resolution rich faith to a new listener um do you think would involve having the skeptic in mind whenever you're say drafting a sermon or having you know preparing to talk to somebody like thinking to yourself okay what is the hard question here in this like what would the skeptic ask like oh this sounds nice but what about this small group of people, like, you know, you could just a low hanging fruit would be like suffering. You know, we talk about like, uh, Christ redeeming suffering and well, what about the people who were born into suffering, never had a chance and then died? And like, right. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, I think someone from the outside who doesn't have an eternal perspective would be thinking that question, but that's like a hard question and it can take a while to answer a question like that, but how important is it to keep the skeptic in mind when, presenting the gospel?
0: I don't know that I ever am skeptic. Um, I, probably this is not fair to do this, but like when you say skeptic, I think somebody who's critical and, and that might be two different things, but I don't care a whole lot about trying to address that person as much as I do the person who's open that the person that goes, Hey, I don't think I believe this, but I'm open. Mm -hmm. that's who I'm trying to address from them to, you know, people who are mature believers. And my hope is that mature believers will default to, Hey, we're going to cover some stuff you should already know, um, for the sake of younger believers. But as far as like skeptics or critics, I don't, I don't think that even comes into my thinking when I'm prepping a message or a sermon, because that's something I'll deal with on the side, like on an email or, Hey, why don't you come to the office? Let's sit down and talk. Um, because you, in my experience, if you try to address something that's um, that's a criticism, then it's going to be one-sided. It's going to be unsatisfactory for whoever you're preaching right. to or delivering the message to anyway. Because there's always going to be another argument or an, another objective or objection or whatever it is. So in my experience, I don't even try to do that with a sermon. It's, it's always like, hey... It's for the people who are open.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to lose the people who are open in order to try to reach the one who's willfully blind. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I tend to I tend to default to that, you know, if I present the gospel in a compelling way, that the gospel communicates. You know, the, the gospel does, you know, the word of God does what it was intended to do. And that doesn't mean that I need to avoid addressing an issue that a skeptic might be dealing with. But it, it does mean that I don't have to feel the pressure of trying to engage and address those things every time I step in the pulpit. Or, you know, that if I if I don't have this really perfectly laid out argument that that, that person's not gonna be compelled, right? Because that's the Holy Spirit's job. The gospel look, every person in every person who hears a message needs the gospel right? Every person in the seat, every person online, whether they're a believer or whether they're not a believer, we need the gospel to come to bear on our lives. And so if we land on the cross, if we land on Jesus, mm-hmm. right? If we come back to that and the beauty and the transcendence and the glory of that, the Holy Spirit does the, the work, right? right? To convince people and to draw them and to transform their hearts. Um, and so... I guess to go back to what I was saying, we shouldn't feel like we you know, oh, if I don't address this question, then then you know, this this message isn't going to be effective. But neither should we shy away from that, you know, but but the gospel is we, we just need to tell the beautiful story. I mean, it does what it does, right? Yeah. Mhm.
1: Do you think that there's a reason why um certain stories might be more compelling than others. Like, let's say for instance, someone who's a nun, someone who's like in Gen Z, like doesn't have a belief system. Um, do you think that, uh, like, uh, an activist narrative would be more compelling to that person than the gospel for like a particular reason? Or do you think it's that it's just most readily available, um, that they could just latch onto it easily? Do you think that, um, do you think that let's say ideologies are more attractive to someone who's fallen, uh, who hasn't been, who hasn't uh, realized their need for the savior yet. And as like a way to sort of push themselves out of it, like what's your sense about why the path of least resistance to a belief
0: system doesn't
1: seem to be flowing through the church.
0: I mean, my first initial thought is I think a lot of people are drawn to ideologies because, Um, they seem to solve a more immediate problem. Um, and I think a lot of times we've got this misconception with the gospel that it's, it solves an eternal problem and it does our sinfulness. Um, you know, and we talk about heaven and all those kind of things, but they all feel like long-term way down the road. And I think a lot of people, especially young people have, they lack the ability to see long-term. And so they look in the immediate and they go, Oh, well that's not for now. This is for now. Hey, we want to stop racism or we want to stop, um, you know, homelessness or whatever their the specific need might be. They go, hey, and so they become an activist and this is what we're after because it's solving this problem. Um, and so I think that's part of it probably. There's an immediacy to ideology sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm just speculating.
2: Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, I think, you know, that the gospel speaks to all of those things, mm-hmm. right? And so – again, if we're preaching the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and not just preaching it, but then living it out. um, I mean, it addresses all of those issues. It addresses all of those things. Uh, There is space for activism in the gospel. I mean, the gospel calls us to act. Um, And so uh, I, I think if, you know, to use the word that you said, I think if the church is not the path of least resistance to belief, uh, that again, that that falls on us. Mm-hmm. That that falls on those of us who uh, call ourselves followers of Christ, uh, especially on those of us who um, call ourselves teachers. I mean, the Scripture is clear that we're going to be judged more harshly. Uh, you know that there's a standard that we're held to, and so you know maybe um maybe we've gotten to a point in this conversation if you're a a rural church leader and you're going i don't know how this really (laughs) applies to me here's how it applies to us right and that is that that we're going to be held accountable for the way in which we've communicated the gospel and the way in which that we have engaged the culture around us and and man i don't care if you are living in you know, in a community that has 50 people in it and you've got 12 people in your church on a Sunday or whatever, there's there's a family nearby you who's got a, a kid who is, you know, it, part of Gen Z, who is skeptical and doubtful and has questions and they need someone to engage them with the gospel. And And we don't get off the hook for that like we we're it like God, there's not a plan B God called the church right he called us to carry the gospel to go into all the world and make disciples he called us to do that and that means we have to continually ask ourselves these questions like how do i engage this generation how do i engage this person what are the questions that they are asking and how does the gospel address those questions what is it that that they're wrestling with and, and how does, you know, how can I help them to see that, that Jesus, you know, cares about that issue as well. And, you know, if we're not willing to do that, if, if we find ourselves in the camp of people who are saying, Oh, those lazy millennials, Oh, or Oh, those Gen Z's, they don't, you know, man, we've, we've gotten off track. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've lost the narrative. We've lost the gospel somewhere in there. And we, you know, we can't, we, it's far too more, it's far too important. There's far too much at stake for us to allow that to happen. One of the
1: things that I found pretty interesting, and this is, this is right in line with what we're talking about. um, It seems like certain speakers who would align somewhat with the gospel, like I'm thinking of people like Jordan Peterson, I'm thinking of people like Ben Shapiro, even though he's Jewish, like people who would align with more Christian values Mm -hmm. so to speak it's interesting to me that some of them have gotten so popular Jordan Peterson in particular just exploded into popularity and I don't know if you've ever listened or watched his um, psychological significance of the biblical stories like it's a YouTube series that he did he he could be preaching sermons I mean really it's it's essentially what he's doing he's just Mm -hmm. going through the text and talking about his you know he's trying to unpack it so to speak Um, and I'm interested in why some speakers like that have gained in so much popularity while the preachers, although there are popular preachers, like what, what need are they filling that the church isn't filling? Like, why is it, what itch are they scratching? Do you have any sense about that?
2: Well, all right. So
1: I think there's We a have an
2: innate sense of morality. Man, we're going to like really jump into the deep weeds here, right? Like C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the sense of the numinous, right? What he means, that the numinous, in the, like the sense of the spiritual, mm-hmm. that we all know that there's something beyond us, right? We all understand that this is not all there is, and we have this innate sense of morality. Like even if you didn't grow up in a Judeo-Christian uh, environment, like mm-hmm. if you go to a place... That where the gospel has never reached, where there's, there's no, like, influence of Western culture whatsoever, right? Uh, no matter where you go, uh, it's wrong to take someone else's wife, right? We just understand that to be egregious. We understand—it's written in our hearts— what and so there there's a there's a sense of the law of God being, you know, and then scripture talks about this, the law of God being written on our hearts. There's a, an understanding that we have of right and wrong just it's hardwired into us. And so to me that's what would be compelling about those things is that we we understand there's like there's something inside of us that understands, yeah, that you know what, it's wrong for me to take what does not belong to me. It's wrong for me to kill another person you know, out of anger or malice, or, you know, we understand those things. And so what makes the gospel transcendent is not morality. We are not morally superior because we believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. In fact, the gospel would say that I need Jesus because I'm not morally superior. And so when we rely on the gospel for its morality— we are not relying on Jesus. We're, we're, we're back to legalism. We're back to reaching out to God on our own. And it's not that we shouldn't do our very best to follow that moral code, to do what is right, to do what is pleasing and honorable to God. But if that is the thing that I am hanging my hat on, then, man, that's I can get that anywhere, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I mean, Oprah wants me to be a nice person. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: you
2: know what I mean. But Oprah can't save me.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It would be a mistake to uh, rest your eternity on Christian values instead of on Christ.
2: Yeah. All right. I think we exhausted that one. Uh, so Mel, maybe you've got something a little lighter for
0: us. I don't know. You go, No, you? I don't. This one. This one stinks. But um, <laughs> so you know, early on in COVID run. Um, you know, I was telling people, man, I'm I'm not optimistic how churches are going to fare through COVID. And then COVID happened, and everybody was going, man, attendance is down, but giving's up. And we kept hearing that from churches all yeah, across yeah. America, different size churches, especially some smaller churches, their attendance was actually up after COVID because they engaged people in different ways. And right. So um, David Kenneman from the Barna Group just did a um, – uh, interview with NPR where he made a statement that about um, that his feeling is that uh, the data is indicating that about one in five churches in America are going to be closing their doors uh, and it's going to be related directly to COVID. And it wasn't the first round of COVID. It was all the lingering stuff from COVID, the fatigue, the, you know, the, the loss in uh, membership, uh, the loss in leaders because that's another thing that a lot of pastors are quitting the ministry in record numbers now. Yeah. And now you've got these churches that have have spots to fill but there is no one to fill the spot. And so whereas, you know, I thought that the issue was going to be financial before, now it becomes more of a personnel issue, like mm. hey, we don't have a pastor. Right. And, you know, some of the denominations where we're at in the region of the world we're in, they will share pastors. So the Methodist churches, especially some Presbyterian churches, they'll share a pastor among four or five churches. And that's not sustainable long-term. Right. And it's not a a good growth model. If your pastor is there every two weeks or three weeks. And so um, then they didn't really offer any solutions as much as it was, Hey, here's what the data seems to be saying. And, um, and I just thought that was really interesting. Um, and, as we were talking about some of the challenges earlier with nuns and things like that, I think that presents opportunities and I think this presents some opportunities as well, potentially for the kingdom. But, um, but yeah, I just want to share that with you guys and see if you had any feedback or thoughts.
2: Yeah. I mean, the first thought that I have just to bring it down to a practical level is um, I understand, you know I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if guys are struggling, I understand. I mean, this job is really difficult on, on its best days yeah and um it can get really discouraging and so you know if if that's where you're at um man you know i, I don't want to give a platitude and just say hey we're praying for you although we are praying for you absolutely but i would say reach out like if you you know send us an email whatever if we if, you know we'll get you connected with somebody that can that can help you or yeah, absolutely. you know that kind of thing uh so that's my first thought the second thing i would think is yeah in terms of opportunity you know um you know we have to be prepared to to step into those opportunities i don't even know what they might be you know like if churches are closing down obviously there are going to be buildings that are available uh and and, and opportunities that are available that may not have been available mm-hmm. before for, for new churches to be planted. Um, but I mean, if there aren't pastors available to fill those, so yeah. we, we have to train up the leaders.
0: Well, I think, um, I mean, when I look at some of the denominations that we're in relationship with, I believe that there are some real opportunities I want to be careful. I don't want to get in trouble. I know with the, within the Assemblies of God, for instance, we're affiliated with the Assemblies of God. And we're, we're, that's technically who we're, we're with. And um, and I'm ordained through them. But not every Assembly of God church in the state of Pennsylvania is a healthy Assemblies of God yeah. church. And some of them don't want to get healthy. Like, they don't want to do what it would take to start reaching lost people. and um, And so the fact that some of them might have to close their doors, I don't know that that's a horrible thing. Um, yeah. and that sounds terrible, but at the same time, it's like, that might be a, a net win for the body. Um, if, if some churches that are ungodly and I don't mean churches that are working and pursuing God and they're just not growing cause it's not about growth. It's not about the numbers. Yeah. It's about the churches that are just like, I want it my way. I don't really care what <laughs> Jesus wants us to win the lost. I'm not interested in that, you know? But I really do believe that it, it, a pruning, well, and let's take it back to our local church. Lots of local churches have had pruning, people that have just started stopped coming for whatever reason. Yeah, And I think we've seen a greater healthiness, honestly, in our congregation, um, even though we have fewer people attending. And I think there could be some benefit like that in denominations if you go from 500 churches in an estate to 350 churches in a state there might be more resources for the churches that are left and you know so i don't know i think there could be some benefit there but it's heartbreaking for the churches and the pastors that are seeing their attendance decline and they're seeing their energy decline and they're seeing their motivation decline and yeah uh, and it's hard how much of
1: the uh, personnel problems would you say is associated with like high walls being put up around certain denominations where you'd have to maybe go to seminary and get a equivalent of like a master's degree and then pass certain boards and stand before X, Y, Z committee in order to become a pastor within the denomination. Do you think that some of those, while I see the benefit of having Mm -hmm. a selection process so that you don't end up with false teachers, uh, do you think there comes a point where the selection process becomes more of a
0: hindrance than a help? Uh, Yeah, I definitely think it can keep people out. Um, and I, I know from their perspective, they would probably say, well, if, if you're not going to pursue the ministry because you have to go to seminary, then you probably didn't want it that bad. Or, you know, they would probably say something like that. Um, but I think, yeah, you limit your pool of applicants. I think there's a lot of people that maybe are not geared for academia, but they have a heart for God and they've got a ministry gifting on them that we eliminate because they're not good at school. Um, And so I think, yeah, I think maybe that might be one of the benefits as well as denominations go, okay, hey, we're going to loosen some of these restrictions to get some people that really want to lead and really want to preach and really want to, you know, in those positions instead of just giving it to people who might meet the, the wrong qualifications. So. Yeah.
1: I've always thought that like active oversight would be much better than a selection process when it comes to identifying and removing false mm-hmm. teachers. Because if you have a selection process, it's like, okay, I went to seminary, I passed my boards, I got the relevant credentials that I needed. And then I went off on my own and became a false teacher and no one noticed because <laughs> right. no one was looking. <laughs> right. It's like, well, if you have active oversight, then you can have, you know, whenever I was coming up, one of the things that they always said to me was that I was moving at like a lightning speed, like really yep. super fast. And I don't take credit for all of that because, uh, Uh, if i had to do this through seminary i would have been limited i would have been limited in the speed that i could go i wouldn't have been able to be as voracious about it like Mm -hmm. it, it was because it was always like a mentor apprentice model that i was able to move as quickly as i could and i i just i have to wonder how many other people are out there that uh you know they get they get stuck, or they get, uh, you know, directed towards a system that has limit speed limits, has mm-hmm. limitations, and so then, and then maybe even they lose their affection for the ministry because being in seminary is not the same thing as advancing the kingdom of God. Right, and uh, maybe they stay away from certain denominations because of that reason, and they say, okay, well. I you know, Presbyterian Methodist church, is it really that much different for me? I can just go, if I, if I go here, at least I'm advancing the kingdom of God, yeah. at least I can be practical in my ministry. Yeah. I just don't think that denominations can afford in this climate to put such high selection hurdles uh, in front of potential mm-hmm.
0: personnel. Yeah. I think I like that, that you offer more oversight on the back end than, um, than the hurt, the obstacles up front. That makes sense. But I, I want to echo what you said a minute ago, Todd. Um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're one of those pastors who's are struggling, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with feeling like, uh, you know, I might, I might want to walk away. I might want to do something different. Um, because I think every pastor who's ever pastored before for any length of time has felt that way at some point or another. Um, no matter how big or small your church is, yeah. you know, we're all prone to feeling those things, feeling underappreciated, undervalued, overworked. Um, you know, is this worth it? We've all had those moments. Yeah. And, and that's where I would tell you, you know, when people come to our church for benevolence help, a lot of times they call us and they're like, Hey, I need help with my electric. Cause my, my electric's getting sho- shut off at two o'clock today. And it's like, Oh my gosh, like we might be able to help, but it would have been so much better if you had called us three weeks ago, we could have helped you then. Yeah. And a lot of times as pastors, we don't ask for help until we're like falling off the edge of the cliff. And, and I want to encourage you pastors, if you're struggling, if your church is struggling Um, there's lots of places that would like to help, you know, your denomination. If you're involved in a denomination, uh, there are some churches regionally all over the country that I know would be happy to help you. And especially if you're in Western PA, um, Northern West Virginia, you know, Eastern Ohio, anywhere near us, man, if we can be a resource or an asset for you uh, in any way, uh, just help you get healthier, help your church. We're not looking to take over churches. We're looking to help churches get healthy and and sustainable. So please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out to us because we don't want you to be one of the one in five.
2: Yeah. We've kind of veered into our main topic for today. So maybe we should uh, just go ahead and embrace that, you know, and uh, talking about um, healthy work life. And I hate to use the word balance because I think balance is
0: um, it's a myth.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an illusion. Um, But but how to you know how to have healthy rhythms? I think that may be the better way to put yeah. it. How to have healthy rhythms in our life um, that can help us avoid some of that stuff. So you know,
1: any any thoughts you guys have on that? The, the most helpful thing that I've discovered so far is uh, narrowing my time frame, and that does, that comes with a cost. And I'll, I'll get to the cost, but first the benefit. Uh, so imagine you think, okay, this month I have to do all of this stuff. Well, that could be pretty over, over, you know, it can feel like an overburden, like too much, but if it's like, okay, in the next morning, I have to do this in the next afternoon. I have to do mm-hmm. this in the next 10 minutes. This is what I have to do. Uh, then it becomes a lot easier and you can focus a lot more. Um, so if you have like a lot of plates spinning at the same time, you got to figure out a way to focus on one of those plates or else they're all going to fall. Yeah. And, uh, the best way I've been able to do that is to just narrow my time frame and say, okay, this is what, this is what needs done in the next six hours. And this is what I'm going to focus on. The downside of that is that if someone comes up to you and asks you, Hey, what are you doing? You know, this Thursday, you're literally like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I got to look because like, I don't know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know if that really, if you guys ever do that, like just sort of take it in smaller chunks, um, and then put the blinders on when it comes to stuff down the road.
2: Uh, Oh, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say I do to a degree. Um, I I would tend to fall into the category of not remembering well enough what's coming up, uh, and so there's a there's a, a little you know there's a thing there as far as I I need to look forward some in some ways in order to make sure that I'm uh, managing my time well to get to the thing that needs to be done, say on Thursday, right? Um, and so, but but to a degree, yeah, I absolutely um, try to you know eat the elephant one bite at a time so to speak
0: yeah and i think there are uh some things that i probably am more intentional about that with and i was looking on my phone as we're talking uh there was an app that i used for a little while i think it was called timekeeper uh i can't find it now but uh really what it was is it was just um uh, a timer that i it would you know, you'd start it and then it would be a set amount of time that you're gonna work on a specific project. And it was just a way for me to be able to go, I'm not gonna work on anything else. If a notification pops up, I'm gonna ignore it for the next whatever and I'm gonna be working on my sermon specifically uh, because ministry is all about interruptions. Yeah. And if we are, we become slaves to the interruption many times. And, um, and so that was a way for me just to be disciplined and just go, nope, no matter what happens, I'm not deviating from this for the next. And so it was just a tool to do that. And you don't need that specifically, but so I do that some kind of in the micro, um, you know, with specific tasks, but generally speaking, I'm not as rigid as that. Probably. Mm -hmm. One of the things
1: I really enjoy here is a book club. Uh And one of the reasons is because, like, it's structured in. So it's like Mm -hmm. you don't – it never comes into a situation of, well, well, I I don't have time to grow my mind or uh, read this book because I have to do something else that is mandated of me. Because if book club's mandated, then it becomes, like, a a way to – it it recognizes the need for health in that way and for growth in that way. And so, like, I think one of the things – Uh, like if you feel like you're getting stuck or like you're starting to atrophy in certain areas because you have too much to do, then maybe the answer is to look at those areas of weakness and start mandating them in in Mm -hmm. part of the daily flow. Even if that means taking something off the top of what you have a surplus on, something that you're like really good at and you know that you're okay, I'm probably going to be okay there if I don't practice as much, take some off of there and then mandate the weaker areas and Mm -hmm. say, okay, that's what I'm going to work on on the clock during this time. Even though the the fruit of it isn't as obvious as like, you know, doing something you're a master at. Yeah.
0: Well, and we don't enjoy that as much either. I mean, we get more enjoyment out of the things we're good at. And so I think it's, we just have to be really disciplined about that kind of stuff. And that's hard because nobody likes discipline. <laughs> right. Um. I know for me, I think a lot of pastors and even for myself at times in the past, I would, I would, work, 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 work. And then I'd find myself in a ditch emotionally or spiritually or whatever. And I'd be like, okay, how do I extract myself out of this ditch? And, um, and one of the things I really started doing probably three or four years ago, um, and it was unintentional at the time, but like, um, one of my pastors, John Nuzo from victory family church over in Cranberry township. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, you're familiar with it probably, but, um, and he's got a leadership podcast you should check out. But, uh, pastor John, he, he, at lunch, um, we were at lunch three or four years ago and he asked me the question at the end of lunch. How are you doing? And I said, well, I'm good. I'm not as good as I probably should be, but I'm better than I was a couple months ago. <laughs> and I think that's how a lot of us probably would respond to questions like, Whoa, I'm not as bad as I was like, uh, am I healthy? Yeah. No, nah, but I'm boy, I was really unhealthy yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's kind of what my response was. And he leaned forward and he said, well, what do you need in order to get healthy? And I said, I, I need two weeks off. Like, no church, just, you know. And he said, okay, when did you going to do that? And I said, well, I'll find some time. I'll figure it out. And, you know, I'll look at the calendar. Oh. And he said, you're not going to find time. And I know you, and that's not how that works. And he said, so here's what you're going to do. And, uh, and he doesn't have the, like, the legal status in our church to be able to mandate anything from me. But he has the, he has the relational equity. Yeah. And so he said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to drive back to your office when you get to your office, you're going to look at your calendar and you're going to text me today before the end of the day and let me know when you're taking two weeks off. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> and, uh, and he did that as a friend, as, yeah. as a pastor saying, I care about your heart and your soul. So you, but you're, you're not disciplined enough to do this on your own because you're too busy with the things that are urgent. So you have to do this. And, uh, so I started doing that a couple of years ago, just taking a couple weeks where it would be staycation. I would maybe work on some stuff around the house, but I would do nothing church related. And, and that's, that was really good for me, but that kind of started a journey for me of, um, like, how can I stay mentally and emotionally and spiritually as healthy as possible? And so I started doing like going to see a Christian counselor, a Christian therapist regularly. And even that, you know, when I went, my therapist was like, "Hey, what am I seeing you about? What's going on?" And I just said, uh, "Well, I'm a pastor." And he's like, "Okay, so is, you know, is there something we're going to be working on? Did something happen?" And I'm like, no. I'm just a pastor. <laughs> and, uh, and I just said, you know, I don't have anything cataclysmic, but I just know if I don't take care of the slow drip of stuff over time, there's going to be an erosion in my soul and I will be dealing with a cataclysmic. And so I tell people all the time, I don't go to counseling cause my engine is broken. You know, I go to counseling cause I don't want the engine to be broken. Just like your yeah. oil change, mm-hmm. you know, you don't get your oil change cause your engine seized up. You get your oil change to keep it from seizing up. And so that's the way I approach that. So, you know, there's things I do and the macro like that, the bigger scale. But, um, I mean, I really try to leave my work at church as often as I can, as much as I can. And I know that's hard for pastors cause we're pastors. Right. Um, but I really try to disengage and not be checking emails all the time and not be, you know, yeah. And, and and I think you guys, you're on our team, so you see this, but like I'm not messaging you guys at all hours of night going, Hey, we need to be doing and why aren't you? And I'm thankful for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. I mean, but that's that's for you, but it's for me too. Yeah. Like, I don't need that. Like it's better for my heart if I'm disengaged some and if I can be present with my kids when I'm there and that kind of thing. So those are some of the things for me that just help me keep a, a healthy rhythm normally Yeah. so that, like I said, I don't find myself in the ditch going, how did I, how did I get here?
2: Yeah. Well, and Mel, I know you've read it, Michael. I don't know if, if you have or not, but you know, uh, Carrie Newhoff, uh, yeah. the last book that he wrote, didn't see it coming. It, mm-hmm. it, it addresses a lot of these exact things. Yeah. And, uh, and he talks about his journey through burnout and having a season where he was even, you know, contemplating suicide. And, you know, I mean like, you know and, and we don't want to talk about that stuff we don't want to admit that that's part of our our life and our experience as a pastor because you know that's not supposed to be happening to us but yeah. uh you know we, we man i mean think about how many tragic stories of church leaders crashing and burning could have been avoided mm-hmm. if we were just willing to set these kind of boundaries in our lives and to have these kinds of rhythms. And, you know, uh and, and carrying you off, not only does, he, I mean, the book is tremendous, you should read it, but I mean, he's got a ton of resources for this kind of thing. He's yeah. really put a lot of work into this idea of uh, managing our time well and making sure that we have healthy rhythms in our lives. And, Uh, I mean, he even, uh, I mean, he drills down into, like, dividing up your day into green, yellow, and red zones as far as, like, when you have your most energy. I mean, he he really has spent a lot of time and work on this kind of stuff, so I can't recommend uh, those resources enough. It's really, really good stuff. Um, And then uh, I mentioned John Mark Comer earlier in the podcast. There's a book that he wrote a couple of years ago now um, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Mm Mm-hmm. And man, just for me personally, it had an incredible impact on the way that I was going about organizing my time and living in a hurry all the time. Uh, even even being in a hurry when I didn't need to be in a hurry yeah and um, just that that mindfulness and awareness of being in a moment and slowing down and recognizing that that Jesus is in control, that God is sovereign. And are there things that are urgent? Yes. But that doesn't mean that I need to be in a rush and in a hurry, you know, um, mm-hmm. because oftentimes that really is a reflection of my lack of trust in, in whether or not God's in control.
0: Well, it's even like simple things. After I read that book, one of the things that I caught myself doing at times was like when if I was driving somewhere, um, you know, I feel like guys especially have this need to make good time. Like we have these mental clocks in our head, how long it takes to get certain places. (laughs) And I know not everybody's like this, but I know like, Hey, if it normally takes me this long to get there and I make it quicker, I'm like, man, I made good time. Yeah. I won. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't know. I don't know what the payoff for that is, but I, I caught myself after I read that book going, Hey, I'm, I'm not in a rush. I don't need to pass this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, it's okay to drive the speed limit or just a little above it if I want to yeah. like, you know, uh, I'm not Richard Petty here. Um, so <laughs> that, even that just being a discipline for me to go, no, 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 I don't have to do that was like helpful for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Man. Discipline is hard. I, uh, I had Meadows ice cream and popcorn for dinner last night. So discipline is <laughs> you're younger um, than we are. So you can yeah, get away with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the power of routine here when it comes to this kind of thing, like getting into a rhythm, I think routine sometimes get a, gets a bad rap in the church because there are so many churches who get stuck in bad routines uh-huh. and then they become the churches who, when you, you try to help them talk with them and Uh, help them uh, do better. They don't want to, because they're married to the bad routine. But I think that there are good routines too, and good habits that you can fall into. And one of the things that, uh, I, I have been benefiting the most from habit and routine is, uh, not having to think as much. So if I do a certain task so many times that it becomes second nature, Mm -hmm. then that frees up that cognitive space in my, during my day, like when you're trying to learn something new, like when you step into a new job that you don't know anything about yet, it's amazing how overtaxed you become mentally. And then like, once you start to, uh, once some of those things start to become second nature, then all of a sudden you have this freedom of thought and this ability to think. And, uh, Steve jobs used to wear like black turtlenecks all the time Mm -hmm. and And jeans every day. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so I've done a little bit of reading
0: The Facebook Zuckerberg? Fan, Zuckerberg. Yeah, he does the hoodie and blue jeans yeah. every day. Same it's the same thing it's, though. It's fascinating
1: though, yeah. because it's like I think the rationale behind it is that you only have so many so much decision making power in a day, period it's finite. And so if you use some of that when trying to figure out what you want to wear, that's one less decision you might, again, like that <laughs> might be a little extreme, but that's, uh, that's where I went wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. You, your wardrobe is a little wider than I've mine been,
2: I've been standing in my closet. That's where all my <laughs> cognitive space is. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Uh, so what kind of routines what are some things that are part of your daily life your daily work life that have become so second nature to you now that you don't have to think about them anymore and do you think that we get pressured into uh doing things in a fresh new way maybe a little bit too often to where we don't we stop benefiting from these uh things that we would think are of like old hat or like uh you know routine that we don't have to think about anymore
2: um and there was a couple of questions in there, I think. The first one was, what aspects of our job do we not have to think about anymore? I I don't know. I don't know
0: on that. I really don't know the answer well, to that. Well, and, and your role has changed recently. And so, I mean, some of what you do a lot is, is new. Yeah. So yeah. that's probably part of it. And, and, I mean, I would say even for me, I mean one of the things that's helpful is like I've, I've carved out some things on my schedule specifically, like Tuesday's always a study day. That's the day that I'm blocking off. I'm not having any appointments, yeah. you know? So there's some things like that, but as far as just things that I don't have to think about anymore that like I can do mindlessly, like the shower thing, you know, where it's like, Oh, well, when you shower, your mind is free to think about other things. Um, I don't know that I have a lot of stuff like that in my normal schedule that I'm just like, no, I can disengage because um, because this is so routine and I don't know if that's a, because I'm undisciplined or if that's just because my schedule, I mean, you know, it is so different all the time. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I have an answer for that one. Yeah.
1: It probably depends on the type of work too. Like yeah. Some work lends that's itself true. to that. And then some doesn't like, for instance, Bible study, like without thinking seems like a contradiction in terms that would be mm-hmm. really hard to do. I mean, I don't yeah. think it's even possible, but, uh, yeah, I think that, um, man, it just seems sometimes like the pressure for improvement and like the eye for improvement Mm -hmm. runs counter to the implementation of second nature routines of like getting people. So like I've thought from the production standpoint, like I've looked at different things that I thought might be able to look a little bit better. But then Mm -hmm. I think to myself, okay, I just now have a team of volunteers who are finally able to grasp what we're doing and, and do it in a way that is like consistently you know, mistake free and that sort of thing. And so the cost of changing that even a little bit could mm-hmm. be pretty high. Yeah, And so I don't know how you balance the eye for improvement because they say with like working out too, you should always try to take your body by surprise and you shouldn't do the same things all the time because then, you know, you won't grow in certain ways, but, but man, I don't know. You know, I've heard John MacArthur talk a lot about the power of routine and he talks like how, you know, people ask him how he's still able to do what he does all these years later at his age. And doesn't he ever get tired and this? And how do you keep the passion up? And his answer to that is that, he establishes routines and he just does those things, even yeah. if he's not feeling passionate about them. Because the thing about the routine is it's like a well-greased path. So you don't mm-hmm. need a lot of passion to push yourself down it. You just naturally flow down it. And uh, I wonder how many of those things in terms of ministry and active ministry, things that are, provide an active benefit to the community and to the congregation can become routine so that you don't have to feel as driven to, to meet the the standard, you know, mm-hmm. on your own pure grit and effort every Time.
0: Well, I think um oh, I had somebody this last weekend here at Summit, they said, um, they stopped me and they said, Man, your sermons have gotten so much better since you came. I'm like, well, yeah, they should have. I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. They should have. I'm if preaching. You, if you do something every week. Yeah, before, I'm doing it yeah. three or four times a weekend <laughs> and I'm spending a whole day studying and you know what I mean? Like Yeah, I appreciate that, but you should fire me if I'm not better than I was seven years ago. Um, And so I think like when it comes to preaching, I don't have to think about it nearly as much as I did. Like it is not as it's it is not as um, consuming for me as far as things I have to do um, as it used to be, cause used to, I have felt a lot of pressure and I got to get this right. And I have to be funny and I have to be deep and I've got to do, you know, here's all the things I've got to do. But I think the more comfortable I've gotten, um, in who I am, who God's called me to be, who got, who God has not called me to be. Maybe more importantly, I don't have to be Matt Chandler or TD Jakes yeah. or whoever, you know, S- Steven Furtick that, uh, I can just be me and that's who God's called me to be. All those things have helped me get more comfortable where now I don't, spend nearly as much time on sermon prep. And it's not because I don't, um, it's not because it's not important, but it's because I don't need to do as much sermon prep as I did when I first came. And part of it's because it's in me more, like I know the word better than I did seven years ago. So I don't have to spend as much time searching and studying and, you know, scouring scripture. And, um, so that's part of it. So that's one of those things that I go, I got it. I don't have to worry about that every week. I don't have to think much about it, you know? And, and I definitely know if it, if it's not clicking. And I think if you ever prep sermons, you understand. I've preached a few that are like, eh, it's a, this is going to be fine. And then there's a few that I'm like, nope, I got it. Like, yeah. Okay. I'll, well, that's part of the thing too.
2: You you're going back to what you're saying about the things you don't have to think about when you've done that enough, like yeah. you, you learn how to craft a sermon. And so then you're not so much Focusing on crafting or building the sermon as you are getting the material to fill in the spaces, yeah. right? You yeah. already have the understanding of here's how I need to move in this this story that I'm telling. Here's where I want to start. Here's where this needs to end up, you know. And then building the framework around that becomes a lot easier. It becomes second nature. Mm-hmm. Like for most of my ministry career, uh, I've been involved in leading worship, um, and you got you get to a place where you know, I don't have to spend a lot of cognitive space going, okay, how are these songs going to flow together? Well, mm-hmm. I have, I have an, an understanding of musicianship and of musical theory and all of that kind of thing that just allows me to see how that would happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who uh, is just now coming into that, you know, would go, oh, man, how am I going to transition from from D to F sharp? And how am I yeah. going to, mm-hmm. you know, how do I get these songs to, to, to flow into one another? And how do we, thematically, does this all, you know, and so you begin to see those connections readily, mm-hmm. uh, which does free up some of that cognitive space. Uh, in terms of routine, though, I think we have a routine whether we want to recognize it or not, right?
0: Well, our routine might be chaos.
2: Yeah. And so I, I either have a routine that serves me or I have a routine that hinders me. Yeah. There's no, there's no in between. And so if, if I'm going, well, you know, oh, I don't, I don't want to have a routine. You, you've got one. You've got one, right? I'll be honest. My tendency is just to let life come at me, right? To just, you know, whatever comes up, whatever is immediate, the, you know, the, the God of the urgent, you know, that, mm-hmm. the, you know, that's the thing that I would address. Uh, and I would routinely not get the things done that I needed to get done because it was dealing with the urgent. Uh, I, I want to say it was Franklin Roosevelt who said that what is urgent is rarely important and what is important is rarely urgent. And, um, if we can, if we can uh, craft our routines and organize our routines around those things that are most important and learn to say no to things that may appear urgent, but aren't important, then, you know, that, that, at least for me, that, that makes a huge difference in, uh, in my level of productivity, in my mental health, because if I like just jump at whatever's urgent, which I would tend to do because I don't like conflict. Right. Uh, but if I jump at whatever's urgent, then I, then I get, you know, I get tangled up in that. And then I start worrying about the thing that's important that I'm yeah. not doing. And then, you know, um, no is a powerful word mm-hmm. and, you know, as pastors, often we are, we, we are our makeup, like we're the kind of people that, like we, we have a sense of calling to people and to, and, and it's important. It is vitally important. But, um, you know, I, Mel kind of alluded to it a minute ago about, you know, um, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but the idea that you didn't get where you're at, like, yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to fix it in the next yeah. 30 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Let's set up a time. Here's, here's the time that I've set aside yeah. to that you know, I can meet with you then. But if, if we're always
0: a slave to the immediate. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the problem. It's easier for me. And I tell pastors that I'm talking to a smaller churches all the time. I've got it easier than they do because I've got a staff and I've got an assistant and they can all help guard me. And like, if somebody's asking me about a missions trip, I can go, I like, to go talk to Steph. Like, she's the missions pastor. Hey, what are we doing with small groups? Well, that's not my area. You know, like, yeah. I don't know what we're doing yeah. with small groups. But small church pastors have to know everything. Right. And they, um, they, a lot of times pastors of smaller churches don't feel like they've got the right to say no, even if they have the ability to say no. Um, but, but this is something I was talking to one of our associate pastors about, um, that he, he would take a lot of appointments in the evenings to do counseling and i just said stop doing that um, because people take off to go see their doctor yeah. they take time off work to go to a dentist but they expect the pastor to be available at their beck and call and i think some of you pastors need to hear this you can tell you can tell people no i can't meet with you then yeah. here's when i meet with people and you can have it on your schedule i'm going to meet with people on these days during these times and if they can't do it i'm sorry but and you can always make an exception for somebody if it's you know a board member if it's somebody that's important to you that that you don't have to bow to everybody else's schedule um, because if you don't guard your schedule nobody will um, and that's where pastors start getting into burnout is because well now well I'm I'm at the church every night this week I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm running this and yeah. And that's, that, they can get dangerous. And so I think, you know, like you said, that one word, no, is powerful to help you take control back of your calendar and your schedule and and um, maybe your your margin in your mental and emotional health, too. Yeah, uh, you know, Jesus
2: was perfect in every way, right? So he never broke the law, uh, which means that he observed the Sabbath every week, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it, which means that there were, like, Jesus was like, I'm not going to be available. It's the Sabbath. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? And so uh, I think, you know, at least for me, that's a freeing concept. And I go, oh, wait a minute. Jesus routinely, not only did he, like, there, you know, Bible says that it was his practice to go off into a solitary place and mm-hmm. to be alone and to pray. Yeah. Not only did he do that, not only did he have that kind of routine where he was spending time with the Father in prayer and in solitude, but he was Sabbath every week. Like there's no
1: work happening. Um, so, so both of you brought something up that I really want to chase down and maybe we can close on this, but, uh, you talked about parts of your craft that because of the years of experience and time doing it, you don't need to think about a lot of it anymore. So if there's someone who's new at it, I mean, they're going to, it's going to take them 12 hours. What it takes you to do two in two hours, maybe for, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, so, that implies the sacrifice of the years it takes to get to that point. Like you have to put in the time, you have to pay your dues, all of that. Um, but the reward of that is that you have something that could be like foundational to your ministry that you don't even really have to work that hard at, that you can always bring to the table, even when you're not feeling well, that's a really nice tool to have. My question is how do you know when you are a Jeep trying to be a Ferrari or a Ferrari trying to be a Jeep and how do you know when to, to, uh, go off of that path onto a different one uh, because let's say let's just say that everyone wants to get to the point where they have that one thing that they, they've they mastered mm-hmm. uh, at what point should they sort of say okay, well, this thing that I'm trying to master is just not in my DNA. And so then I need to move over and master this other thing. Because if you, it seems like perseverance is necessary in order to get to that point where you can just have it all put together and you don't need to think about it anymore. But how much perseverance is too much perseverance? Because do you think it's possible that some people just can't master certain things? And if they continued to try, they would just become burned out or they would become discouraged. How would you identify the point along which it's like, okay, time for me to transform, time for me to uh, recognize the frame that I'm working with?
2: I mean, I think uh, what you said about, is it possible that they're never going to master a certain thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, (laughs) I'm never going to master the three-point jump shot. Like you know, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. I, that's not, yeah. you know, like we have different affinities. We have different giftings, and Scripture even points that out. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about that. Like that, you know, that each of us have different gifts, and that's why the body functions properly when we all understand what our role in our gifting is, and we, we, you know, and we function in that way. And so, yes, there are things that. That I will never master. That possibly you will, or or things that I'm not going to be good at. That Mel will be good at, or vice versa. Um, the other thing that you talked about was how do you know if you're a Jeep and not a Ferrari? I think the answer to that is that when we stop comparing ourselves to everyone else, uh, and and I mean that just in terms of uh, not. Well, in, in terms of comparison, not in terms of like how can I learn from this person, but when we're asking questions like why, why doesn't my ministry look like that, or yeah. why you know why don't people respond to my sermons in that way, yeah. or why don't this, or why don't that, or you know, how come you know how come he can run fifteen different departments and I'm struggling to run my one, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and and when it becomes this like. Measurement, like I'm measuring myself and and my worth and my value and the success of my ministry against what someone else's ministry looked like, you know, it's it's a healthy thing to ask, how can I learn from them? What habits do they have that I can bring into my life that I can put into my rhythms that you know that are helpful to me? It's a whole other thing when we start trying to be that person, that other you know, and so I think we start to be honest about who we are and what our capacity is when we stop comparing ourselves to other people.
0: Mm -hmm. That's good. And I think it's important to have people in your life who can speak honestly into your life. Um, And and this is weird because I mean, I'm going to say this, but I had um, two different pastors that I served under that uh, one of them told me that uh, I didn't have the ability to lead more than 75 people. And he said, you just don't have that capacity and that's not in you and you'll never pastor a church bigger than 75. And I was like, well, I, I think you're wrong, but you know, I wasn't disrespectful. I was like, okay, thanks for the word of encouragement, brother. I appreciate that. <laughs> And, uh, and then I had another pastor, uh, the, the, well, the, the one who I served under most previously when, um, when I was, um, being let go from that church, I was already in the uh, interview process. And he asked me, he said, are you interviewing some churches right now? And I said, yeah. And he said, how big are they? And I knew when he asked, I felt like he's just asking cause he wants to be able to compare it and go, "Oh, will see. And so I said, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing with churches lots of different size. Some of them are two to 300 and he said, well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you know what your limitations are. And it was like, <laughs> wow. Wow. And so those guys and they both would have said they're doing it for my best interest you know but it's like well they don't see me the way other faith-filled people see me and you know um so our our church is bigger than 75 and it's bigger than two to 300 and that's good but that's not the point the point is i needed people in my life who could speak life into me who could see what god saw but would be still be honest about it who wouldn't be like mel you're you know you need to be leading worship. You've got the voice of an angel, right? (laughs) Cause I would be delusional and I would be trying to lead worship and I don't have the voice of an angel. And so I think it's important to have people to be, to be comfortable enough in yourself to let people speak into you, even if it's uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that helps us kind of figure out what our pathway is and figure out where our role is and where our sweet spot is. And just because we're good at something doesn't mean that's what we're called to do. And just because we're called to do something doesn't mean we have to be passionate about it, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a lie a lot of us believe is that like, well, I have to be a lead pastor because I'm a really good teacher. Well, maybe, but maybe you don't have the giftings to be a lead pastor, but you're a good teacher. So, you know, like maybe there's another fit or, um, well, I love Jesus and I'm, you know, I'm faithful and our church doesn't have a pastor. So I'm supposed to be the pastor. Well, maybe, or maybe that's a, that's a recipe for disaster, right? Right. Um, and so I think it's important for us to have people in our lives that can speak into us and help us to find the right place wherever it might be and be faithful in those places, whether it's on stage, behind stage, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, that's good.
2: Yeah. That's all I've got to say about
1: that. I don't know about you. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's good. Good answers. All right.
2: That seemed really awkward. Great transition, guys. Way to go. Nailed it. Our next uh, podcast is
0: going to be on segues. How to make this healthy is to transitions. Make a great. Tra- yeah, uh, this is a, uh,
1: okay. So transition in three, two, <laughs> one, transitioning to the end of the podcast. And
2: that was perfect, Michael. Thank you so much. Uh, no, uh, no, I think those are some great insights all the way around. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to leave you guys with some practical things. Uh, I would refer back to the, the, you know Terry Newhoff and the resources that are available with him. And, of course, there are some other great ones out there as well, but I have direct experience with those. So, um, man, get some rhythm in your routine. Uh, guard guard your, your schedule. Make time for Sabbath talk to somebody. If you need to talk to somebody, uh, you can reach out to us. We'll connect you. If we don't have the answers readily that you might need, we'll connect you with people who, uh, who can, whatever we can do to help and to be a resource and a blessing to you. That's what we want to do. We want to see you succeed. Uh, we want to see you be a transformational leader in your church and in your community. Uh, and so please, uh, Whatever we can do to help you, let us know. We want to be a part of that. Uh, Mel, why don't you tell them some of the things we got coming up for Back Forty?
0: Yeah, you know, um, if if you were part of Back Forty over the last few years, uh, you probably have heard the name Gerald Brooks, and he has been with us. Um, he's been with us here at Summit a couple times. Yeah. Once with for the Back Forty conference, and then uh, I believe it was last year he did a um, he did a, a like a breakout or a, a one day event for yeah. pastors. Maybe was that 2019? It was 2019, I think. Yeah. yeah. 2019. Yeah. And he
2: was on an episode of the podcast as well. If you want to look back, that's correct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so Gerald is going to be with us um, here at summit church the weekend of the ninth and 10th of October. And on Saturday, October the ninth, he'll, he'll be with us that morning from 10 AM to noon. Uh, he's just going to do a few sessions for leaders in our area. That's free of cost. There's no charge at all for that. And so we're going to invite every leader in this area to come and be a part of that, um, to uh, bring your teams, uh, bring your leaders, bring your elder boards, whatever you feel like doing. Bring them over here at Summit Church. Um, we're located at Indiana, PA. And
2: 2707 uh, West
0: Pike Road. That's correct. <laughs> that's correct. And so, we, yeah, we'd be delighted to have you and just hang out. Like I said, it's free of charge, so uh, it might be a good little getaway for you and your team. And yeah. we'd be delighted to host you
2: yeah, you would you don't want to miss that guys. Um, Dr. Brooks is always always like I feverishly am taking notes. There's just so much good stuff yeah. to take away. so uh, don't miss, don't miss that. put that on your calendar. Um, and then of course we'll be making some more announcements about next year's back40 conference. Uh, there'll be a lot to talk about. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be a good time. So Mel, do we know the dates on that yet for next year?
0: It's going to be toward the end of June. Uh, we've got a couple invitations out for speakers now, and it depends on availability. So it's going to be a, a Friday and Saturday uh, in late June. Of yeah. So just
2: block out the month of June. Yeah.
0: We'll
2: be announcing the dates for that really soon. And we want you to, to come and be a part of that. Uh, It's going to be a great time. We hope that you have enjoyed the podcast today. Uh, Remember uh, that next Tuesday, we will be live on YouTube with comments, questions, all of those kinds of things. Come and engage in the conversation there. We can't wait to see you there. Until next time, I am Todd Stanley with Mel Massengale and Michael Bond, and we'll see you soon.